0: Hello and welcome to the podcast An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. So, we're up today till podcast number 23. And it's a bit of a departure from previous podcasts in that it will not it will be dedicated not solely to terrorism as a topic, despite the fact that the podcast is all about terrorism. It's going to combine a little bit of my past as an intelligence analyst and more of a reflection on what that means nowadays, and more importantly for my listeners, many of whom I'm assuming are not intelligence analysts or who have never worked in the intelligence field, but perhaps some clues on how to better access and look at information that's out there with respect to terrorism to get a better idea of what's accurate what's not so that you can make up your mind in the best way possible on the nature of the threat, what we're doing about it, and in the best case scenario, avoid looking at and consuming material that really isn't very good. The genesis of this podcast came out of the annual CASES Canadian Association of Security Intelligence Studies conference that was held two days ago here in Ottawa. CASES is an organization that's been around for quite some time. In the old days, it, it would plan and deliver a two-and-a-half-day conference with some incredible arrays of international speakers. Uh, full disclosure, I am a member of CASES, and in fact, I have helped to organize the past two conferences here in Ottawa. The organization has fallen across I would say some tough times of late. The two-and-a-half-day conference has been reduced to one day. Nevertheless, the One day affairs are usually chock full of some interesting speakers. And I think most importantly, the conference affords people in the SNI, Security Intelligence Community here in Ottawa, to gather together and gives people who are not part of that community a little bit of insight into the world of security intelligence. I was particularly quite pleased to see that at the conference, which has been held at the Canadian War Museum the last couple of years, that the vast majority of attendees were in fact students or very, very young people, certainly a lot younger than I am. And I won't tell you how old I am. The one presentation that I want to focus on today as the topic of discussion was a keynote address given by a Finnish researcher who had come here, obviously from Finland, and he was talking about the future of OSINT, OSINT being an acronym for Open Source Intelligence. His name is Velipeka Kivamaki. He works for the Finnish Defense Research Agency. And I was quite struck by his presentation, which was a multimedia presentation on the nature of how we create information, how that information is shared, and from the perspective of those who are tasked with looking at threats and other elements of national security, uh, what do we do with all that information? So let, let, me, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson here. I joined the Canadian Security Intelligence Community way back in 1983. That was when I was signed on to Communication Security Establishment, Canada signals intelligence agency. And I was the wet behind the ears rookie, didn't know a heck of a lot about signals or information for that matter. And I was thrown in the deep end on elements of collection and processing and winnowing that data down to figuring out what the intelligence value was and then spinning it in such a way, spinning it in a positive sense, not a negative sense, in such a way that clients could consume it and that the information we provided could help in decision-making to do with various issues that the Canadian government uh, had an interest in and needed to to take some kind of action on. Towards the end of my career in security intelligence uh, at CSE, I was actually the head of collection and the head of data processing. Uh, Luckily, I had some very talented people that worked for me because I certainly wasn't the expert in either field. But the analogy we used to use back then in terms of working in an intelligence service, collecting information, processing it, distilling it, extracting the good bits, and then passing them on to analysts for them to analyze and write into reports was the phrase drinking from a fire hose. If you've ever tried to drink from a fire hose, you know that it's not a very easy thing to do. That was back in the late 90s. And I cannot imagine what the analogy is today. Maybe it's drinking from a water pipeline as opposed to a fire hose, because there's been no question that the amount of information that's out there on any given topic has grown exponentially is not the proper term here. I don't think there's a term in the English language to indicate just how much more information we have access to than we did even five or 10 years ago. And that's a huge issue when you work in security intelligence because you're trying to get as accurate a picture as possible about a particular area. In my time at CSIS, which I joined after CSC, had to do with counterterrorism. Uh, we'll talk about that at the end, towards the end of this podcast. It's a constant battle between having the time to look at the information to which you have access, wanting to make sure you have as much information as possible, and I think most importantly wanting to make sure to the best of your abilities that you haven't missed something. I certainly was involved in a couple of, of tasks at CSE in which uh, analysts had missed information. Uh, I won't go into details as to why or how, and it ended up having a very important effect, a negative effect, on those analysts' ability to provide the intelligence to the client in a timely fashion. So we're dealing with this information overload. Maybe in a future podcast, we'll talk about misinformation and disinformation. I'm just going to settle on just the amounts of information that are out there. It is truly astronomical in size. And it does put a lot of pressure on a lot of people and what to do about it. The other aspect of intelligence, which I always found quite interesting, and this was made quite clear to me when I began my career, oh my God, 36 and a half years ago now, was this notion that as, as an intelligence analyst, you weren't expected to. And in fact, in some cases, you're almost forbidden from using open source information. Uh, The way it was explained to me was that you are an intelligence analyst, you're not a journalist, you're not a PhD student, you're not Joe Blow sitting in his living room with with the afternoon newspaper. You are paid to look at collection that is classified for all types of reasons and to extract the intelligence from that information. In other words, um, it's not that we couldn't use open source information. In fact, I used to use it to set up the intelligence question. But we were heavily discouraged from spending too much time doing that. That's not what we were being employed for. It's not the reason for which we were hired. And it certainly wasn't what we were being paid for. Let me fast forward to today. Uh, So I've been retired from the intelligence community for four and a half years now. I no longer have access to intelligence collection. In fact, my security clearance expired in 2017, and I'm unclear at this point if I'll ever get it back. Uh, I'll only get it back if I have a need for it, i.e. going back to work uh, for the Canadian government, uh, as an example. And so I'm forced to rely on nothing but open source to do my analysis, to write my blogs, to write my books, to do podcasts such as this, and to inform me as to what is going on in the world, in my particular case with respect to terrorism. And therefore, that's all I have. I don't have the luxury of being able to ask my former colleagues, what are you seeing on the human side, human intelligence? What are you seeing on the SIGINT side, signals intelligence? And I must say, that was a bit of a... um, a reaction or an adjustment on my part when I left the security intelligence field in in two thousand and fifteen, you know, having access to some incredible information for more than thirty two years, and then all of a sudden being cut off, it's kind of like quitting cold turkey, and it does take a while to become used to that. I think I have, and I'm sincerely hopeful that the material that I am producing in the various formats I just listed is at least worth reading, and certainly can help inform people as to the nature of the t- of the terrorist threat both here in Canada and abroad. The more important question is, what types of information have I chosen to rely on? And where do I find it? And how do I deem it to be accurate? This is becoming a, a real challenge for a lot of people, partly because of the disinformation, misinformation I cited briefly earlier. Secondly, I think a lot of it has to do with the ways in which people consume news, information writ large in the early parts of the 21st century. So let me tell you how I do it. I'm not saying that everyone should follow my pattern or my model or my practice of doing so, but it certainly has been very beneficial for me and perhaps it can help you as well. One thing that concerns me about our societal consumption of of news and information in, in 2019 is the perception I'm getting and it may be an, an inaccurate one I'm not going to claim to know a lot about this that a lot of people will consume information that's pushed towards them i.e. they subscribe to news feeds or they get their information on facebook or on other social media platforms and yeah i suppose it's it's responded to some kind of an algorithm that Hopefully has something to do with the interests of the consumer. But nevertheless, it's somebody else choosing what you're supposed to read This somebody else be it artificial intelligence or a million monkeys typing on a million keyboards I have no idea of the inner workings of these these agencies is making a decision on your behalf What that implies is that They better get it right In other words, they they better be providing you with the information that interests you. And more importantly, if you're relying on this information to actually do a job, i.e. as an analyst, intelligence or open source, whatever, that in fact, what's being pushed at you, what you're consuming uh, is is adequate. It's enough and it's accurate and it's hitting the mark, which enables you to use it and performing whatever task that, that is being asked of you. I'm fairly skeptical in that regard. And as a result, I do not subscribe to any news feeds. I do not have any algorithm telling me what is of interest to me, what I should or should not be reading. And as a consequence, what I have chosen to do, much like I did in intelligence many, many years ago, is rather than relying on things pushed towards me, I pull things towards me. And how do I do that? Well, this goes back to the initial question that I posed in that, how do you determine what is reliable? How do you determine what is useful to you? And that's not always an easy thing to do. But what I have done is follow a practice that I had many years ago. And that is reading three to four hours a day uh, from a variety of sources from around the world. And usually in English, although I can read other languages as well, but for simplicity's sake, we'll stick to what I do in English, which is the vast majority of what I do. I've identified several hundred news sources from from around the world online, and I glance at what they have to say on a daily basis. It generally takes a couple of hours to do. But it covers the areas of the world that are of interest to me, which when I look at terrorism, is actually the entire planet. But for example, let's just look at, let's say the Middle East, I've identified between 20 and 30 news sources that I will look at on a daily basis, see what's happening out there, seeing what the reporting is saying, looking at how robust the reporting is, looking at how uh, accurate it is, well, that's, that's a challenge sometimes. But I do think it's really important to do that. I do think it's important to establish some reputable sources of information to which you can go either on a daily basis as I do or on a ad hoc basis if need be to obtain the information you need to make to make decisions or to, at a minimum, inform yourself as to what's going on there. What am I saying about this? What I'm saying is that, surprise, surprise, there are some disreputable sources out there that have a clear bias, an ideological bias, or which simply... Do not have any compunction, any problems in actually producing garbage. uh, False information, lies, things that don't happen. Look, we all have biases. I have a bias, you have a bias. That's part of being human. I'm not going to say that I'm completely neutral in any of this stuff. My my background as a counterterrorism analyst, my own personal background is going to imply that I do have biases in many ways. But still, I think it's really important for those of us who comment on these types of things to try to the best of our ability to determine how good is the information that I'm reading or I'm listening to or that I'm watching. Your analysis is only as good as the information that inputs into your analysis. If that information is lousy, then so is your analysis. So I humbly suggest if you have the time if you have the interest if this is a passion for you much like it is for me as opposed to a sideline or something you just do a couple minutes every day and if that's your 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 life then so be it i'm not trying to be critical here but i think if you want to be somebody that looks at at terrorism uh, looks at where it's happening and, and why it's happening what and what impact it's having and what's being done about it and perhaps where it's going I think you do need to read from a variety of sources, and those sources could be everything from news sites such as Al Jazeera, the New York Times, the BBC, etc. There are a number of think tanks around the world that that produce some really good material on terrorism on a daily basis, things like the Foreign Policy Institute, United States. Uh, there, there are think tanks in Europe. There are some here in Canada that also produce the, this type of material. Have a read of it. I'm not advocating that you have to spend hours and hours and hours reading reading long academic articles. and I'm not being critical of academic articles here, but I think that if you if your goal is to maintain an awareness of what's happening in the world on the terrorism front, then that's what you should do. And I'd be more than happy to suggest the sources that I go to on a regular daily or if not weekly basis, some of which may help you in deciding what you should do. Feel free to drop me a line or whatever, contact me and, and I'd be I'd be more than happy to help out any way that I can. The other thing that I highly recommend that you do, if you have access to it, is something called the Open Source Center. Now this used to be the old FBIS, the Foreign Broadcasting Information Service, which came out during the Cold War. When I was at CSIS and CSE, I had access to it because those organizations had accounts Since I retired from the Canadian government, alas, I've been forced to give up my account. And despite my pleading uh, on both knees with my hands uh, placed together in in a prayerful way, uh, they have told me I'm no longer eligible to have an account because I no longer work for the Canadian government. But the Open Source Centre is an incredible resource for those of you who work in governments and to get an account. This is essentially a translation service that's sponsored by the United States government that looks at news from a gazillion sources Many of many times it's in a foreign language, it is translated into English, you have video, you have audio, you have text. And when I was at CSIS, that would be after I looked at the intelligence that had come in the previous day from our collection here in Canada, my first go-to place would be the open source center. And I would spend an hour and a half to two hours with a, a, a customized poll that I'd created. I wanted all the information on terrorism and I would read. I would scan the articles for information of interest. Many times I would print articles, set them aside, in case I needed to use them at some time down the road. And I cannot tell you, even in my first couple of books, so which were produced in 2014, 2015, so around the time I retired, I had file folders full of things that I had printed from the open source center. My book on foreign fighters, uh, Western Foreign Fighters, the second book that appeared in 2016, there's no way I could have written that book without access to the open source center. Many of the cases of foreign fighters that had left from over a hundred countries around the world, that information came from stories that had been translated or posted by the open source center. So I I tip my hat to to the folks that work there. Uh, It's an amazing bunch of people. Even in the lack uh, or rather in the gap that I have not being able to use open source center, there is a a really good amount of information that's out there and I, I, highly highly recommend that you take a look at it we're only as good as that with what we consume and i think that when it comes to terrorism and counterterrorism, and i've talked about this an awful lot in previous podcasts we are living in a world where there is no lack of analysis there is no lack of information that that relates to terrorism whether it's domestically or internationally whether it's here or there and I think that as consumers, we want to be intelligent consumers. We want to question the veracity, question the accuracy of the information that's out there. You know, there have been tens of thousands of books written on terrorism since 9-11. I've written five of them. There are probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of articles about terrorism in newspapers, in magazines, uh, in video, uh, on, on podcasts. <laughs> this is, is also a podcast on, on terrorism and intelligence. And I think that those of us who have chosen or who are being told to look at this phenomenon from an analytic perspective to try to give some value added to what the facts are, it's really important that you use the best sources possible. So I do think that we have to constantly question the sources of information to which we have access. I know that I do it on a regular basis and there certainly are some websites, some media sources that I would use historically and no longer do because I found they weren't very good. i would made the decision that I could do without the information, I could get it from somewhere else. So I highly recommend you do the same thing. I think we're all in this together. I think we all have uh, a part to play when it comes to what is terrorism and what do we do about it and what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong. But the recommendations that we make, the advice that we give is no good if the information is no good. So think about it. What do you consume on a daily basis? How do you get it? Is it sent to you? Or do you go out and get it yourself? What sources do you use? Why do you use them? Why not other sources? How do you find the content? Is it largely dispassionate? Is there a heavy editorial bias to it? If so, ask yourself, what kind of editorial bias? Does the editorial bias have any effect on the accuracy of the information. If you're not asking yourself these, these questions on a regular basis, you're probably not doing a good job as an analyst. That, that's my personal opinion. I'm sure there are many that would disagree with me. It certainly has served me very well for the past 35 years and it's something I do not intend to stop anytime soon. I'm gonna keep reading for three to four hours a day. I'm gonna keep consuming information from a variety of sources, from a variety of perspectives, left, right, center, and everything in between, I'm not going to limit myself to one or two sources. I'm not going to use Wikipedia as my source of information. Wikipedia is, there's nothing wrong with Wikipedia. In fact, I use it in my Today in Terrorism blog series to set up the terrorist attack I want to talk about, but I go to the original information and see how accurate it is. So Wikipedia itself isn't a source of information. It's a source source of sources of information, if you understand what I'm talking about. Go to the original sources, see what they have to say about it. We will continue as a society to have to drink from multiple fire hoses, multiple water conduits when it comes to consuming information that is of relevance to us. Those of us who work in analysis, be it terrorism or other fields, uh, are part of that. We can't get away from this challenge on what to do with this information. I think at the end of the day, What we need to do is do the best job possible in finding the information that's relevant. So again, rather than having pushed to you, go and find it, judge it for how good it is, perhaps see what other people say about it, test it for accuracy over a period of time, look for editorial biases. If you do that, I think you'll make a successful analyst. I would like to think that I was somewhat successful as an analyst, Uh, warts and all mistakes and all over a 32 year period that's the way I do analysis and and hopefully this this podcast has been of some help to you in your doing the analysis as well that's the end of podcast 23 as usual I'd love to hear what you think of this or other podcasts or my blog series or other things that I produce you can reach me on gmail at borealisrisk at gmail.com I'm on twitter at borealis saves on linkedin on Facebook and of course you can leave messages for me on my website itself www.borealisthreatenriss.com I'll talk to you again in a fortnight, until then, stay safe.